Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa Bhutangkhannam Sankhannamasami This is the last uh, evening, tomorrow the finale of this retreat, and the, uh, you take the five precepts, Buddha's uh, teaching of the Four Noble Truths, this, this is uh, the, the essential teaching of, of the Buddha. And this, these truths are, they each have, uh, one has an insight into each of these truths. There's, well, there's, there's three insights to each truth. But the the, the, it's based on the experience of suffering, its cause, its cessation, and the and what is called the eightfold path, or the way of non-suffering. So that it uh, states the the make it proclaims this that there is suffering. There, this suffering is to be understood. So, Realize the significance of that, that suffering is something to understand, not to try to get rid of or run away from, but to be understood. So the, so the first truth reads to us, there is suffering, suffering is to be understood. The third insight is suffering has been understood. So this, so this, this sequence follows for each of the noble truths. The statement, the, uh, what should be done and what and then the realization or the result and so this this uh, dukkha or what we cannot bear or what we think we cannot bear or just just whatever the state of mind of the body is then we when once we admit it into consciousness we 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 say there is this suffering, then the insight is comes from us. It should be understood, and then we we understand. We go to it. We we observe it. We stand under it. And that's why don't be afraid to suffer. Be willing to suffer, not as a kind of to be a martyr or out of some uh, kind of neurotic need to to feel put upon but to to take an interest in it because there's suffering this realm that we're in is a realm 
where suffering is a very common experience to everyone. Then the second noble truth is there is a cause of suffering, which is the uh, attachment to desire. So in the the cause of suffering is, 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 this is a very important and significant statement, is, is not desire, but attachment to desire. So that the desires we have when we attach to them, that's the cause, the attachment of two things, is the, is the cause of suffering. So the insight is suffering should be let go of. So the prescription for the, the treatment is it should be let go of, to let go. And then you practice, you, when you have that insight of letting go, then you practice that and then you have the third aspect of the second noble truth, which is suffering has been let go of. So letting go is the is is uh, the second noble truth. Something I used to talk a lot about letting go. I used to think it was one of Arjun Sumato's discoveries, but it's not. <laughs> and uh, it's Orthodox Buddhism <laughs> and very the essential teaching of the Buddha to to let go of desire. And letting go is not getting rid of, throwing away, it's leaving things, let, allowing them to go. And that's why when we, un, when we talk about embracing suffering or, or fully accepting suffering or willing to suffer, then we're, we're, we're letting it go, we're allowing it to go because all things that come go. You're not, when, once you get into the, idea of you've got to get rid of it, then you're into another the attachment to another desire of wanting to get rid of something. So, so remember that it's the letting go should, one should let go of the cause of suffering, let go of desire, and then through that the realization that desire has been let go of. Remember that desire is the kind of great, uh, basic uh, sensual desires or the desire for becoming something, desire for getting rid of things. So this was quite a, I remember when I started contemplating desire in my practice, it was quite a revelation to see, to think in those three, to contemplate those three categories. Because I realized how like Whipple done, our desire to get rid of things was such a strong habit of mine. And that it was thought it was a good thing to do, to, to get rid of bad things, or, you know, that you should get rid of things. Uh, and so that there was a, this Whipple done, how then I could see was a, um, something that I was very attached to to controlling things, trying to get rid or avoid or get out of things. Anything that might bring suffering or threat of any kind. Then the third noble truth is there is the cessation of suffering. So the second noble truth is the arising, third noble truth is the cessation. 
Now, letting go of desire then allows you to realize the cessation of desire. <coughs> Allowing desire to go, since it's impermanent, then you realize that it ceases. Not There's a realization. Now, a realization is, is reality. It's the real world. It's the, the real thing. It's not it's not the the deluded world that you're all going back to tomorrow. The world of delusion, but the the realization is 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 reality, realizing the cessation. It's interesting. There's a in uh, T. S. Eliot's uh, quartets, and that he this quote called. Uh, um, man's curiosity searches past and future and clings to that dimension but to apprehend apprehend the intersection of the timeless with time is an occupation for the saint no occupation either but a lifetime's death in love ardor selflessness and self-surrender that's a poetic way of describing the third noble truth. Now, the, to apprehend the point of intersection of the timeless with time is, is what the noble, third noble truth is about. To see the, the, the cessation of, of the condition to the unconditioned. So that the point of intersection of the timeless with time. These kind of expressions are, you know, this is this is this is a this is always going on, but we don't see it, we don't notice it, because say in the say the ordinary life of a person, one is just caught up in 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 the arising conditions of life and avoiding the the other side. One is just kind of boredom and and any form of suffering or or uh, discomfort or pain or sickness or death or grief or whatever one tends to easily kind of just get rid of or dismiss or suppress get away from it so that the we we don't see the cessation of things until we 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 are patient and mindful because when we there's the, nobody ever teaches us or tells us or suggests it that the Buddha did in his teaching of the four noble truths realization of the cessation so there is a cessation of suffering and then the inside is cessation should be realized and then. Through the practice, one realizes cessation. So cessation has been realized. So that is the realization of nibbana, or non-attachment, or emptiness, non-self. And that is always here and now. It's 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 the way it is. It's not it's not a kind of of uh, something that happens occasionally in the most rarefied circumstances 
but it's it's quite ordinary. But it's so ordinary, it's it's one doesn't notice. One hasn't even developed the perceptions to notice it. It's not even a possibility in most people's lives because they they don't even think about it or, or know about it or have any clues about it. With that uh, realization of the third noble truth then establishes right understanding, which is that the Eightfold Path is based on uh, right understanding or perfect understanding. So in the, the fourth noble truth, which is the Eightfold Path, the, the insight from the first three truths, the suffering, its origin and cessation, then there's this perfect understanding of the way it is. It's a, but it's not like it's not, it's not uh, fantastic or or extreme. It's perfect understanding of of just that simple pattern that seems insignificant or, or totally or most people totally unrealized. We can only realize things on a very subtle and simple level as human beings. We're not God or something that can see the whole macrocosmic universe from from the top. We have to learn from just this, the insignificance of our, seeming insignificance of our life. This little old me, nobody, with my thoughts and feelings, <laughs> the way I am, you know, just an ordinary guy, really, just uh, one human being in how many, 60 million people here in Britain, or 5.4 billion on the planet, just another another human. But it's in this state of our humanity we learn, we can learn ultimate reality, we can realize ultimate reality. But it's in a very simple form, an insignificant form. It's not, it's not macrocosmic and absolutely fantastic. So this is why where we we can see it within our own minds when we're mindful, we can see it in very simple things. And uh, but yet the human human mind is usually conditioned to only notice things that are extreme. You know, see things on a that that are really very noticeable or very uh, obvious, very exciting, very uh, unusual. Right understanding or perfect understanding, samaditi, samasangapo is the second, is the second fold of the eightfold, which is, uh, translated as right intention or attitude. Because from that perfect, perfect understanding, that perfect, that, that, that understanding couldn't be more perfect. You reach perfect, you can't get better than perfect. Then the intention of the mind is 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 also perfect. You're intending. You're what what you you know, like your what you do, what you aim at, what you incline to. Then is 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 perfect. And so the then the uh, third is the uh, perfect speech. The fourth perfect action with perfect livelihood or usually translated as right 
I'm using perfect tonight. So this means that the right, perfect understanding, perfect, perfect intention, then we, that implies how we live our lives in, in a physical way or verbal ways. What we do with ourselves. How we live our lives with, with, the per, with speech. Because we speak, we have to, we live in a society, we talk to each other. And action, we have to live and make a living and, and act upon things. So we, we do things with our bodies and we have to make, make a living to support families or survive, make money in order to buy food or whatever. So this is, this right understanding takes us to this right way of living a perfect way of living which then of course is uh, the sixth, seventh and eighth are perfect effort perfect mindfulness perfect concentration so they have this the, it's like the, the right understanding or the perfect understanding is the wisdom faculty and the right or perfect speech perfect Action perfect livelihood is the is the moral positioning, and then the uh, perfect effort, perfect mindfulness, perfect concentration is the samadhi. Because when these these are integrated, then your your heart, your emotions are balanced. Perfect your sama samadhi, uh, perfect concentration. It's not like your not a concentration that blocks you off it's a it's a full concentration of openness it's not a concentration on something it's a concentration that is open and receptive so the, the, there is this eightfold path this path should be developed so the the insight into cultivating or developing this way so it's a a lifetime's death in love, order, selflessness and self-surrender is the Eightfold Path. Lifetime's death. You're letting things die in you all the time. You're, you're, uh, you're, you're letting go of things. You're letting your personality and, and all the, the things that you, you identify as being you and alive, you're, you're letting them die in you. It's a lifetime's dying in love, ardor, selflessness and self-surrender. I don't know if T.S. Eliot would agree with my... But that's how I, I interpret it. The... Um, This die before you die. Lung Po Cha used to talk about that. He said, "Die, be, die, go on die and die. Die is 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 die. In Thai, that's the same word. <laughs> they die, go on die, or they die before you die. And in uh, Shakespeare, they also he says, "And death once dead, there's no more dying then." And one of his sonnets, he uh, uses that uh, 
image. So in the in the uh, in dying, say this this letting things go, letting them die. Sometimes you feel it. You feel. Remember going through periods where where I was uh, I felt I was dying. It was kind of frightening uh, because uh, on the level of emotion, there one felt terrified sometimes because you felt you're dying. I'm dying, and and and, and this uh, sense of death was was frightening and there was a desire to live I want to live I want to you know be alive and the emotions would 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 really be quite reactive in that way but if you don't get fooled by that don't uh, don't get get taken over by your emotions then you let them you let them go and they die and what remains after death is peace, calm, clarity, purity. And you, 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 mean, you, you realize the true nature of things, the deathless reality, which isn't trying to, to stay alive or trying to, it's not hysterical, it's not, it's not, it's not fear-ridden, not anything. Uh, that the that these death bound conditions that we identify with are are delusions and and they and that's why we when we when we identify with death usually people think they're identifying with life but they're identifying with death for example if you if you think you are your body what's your body where is it taking you into the in crematorium and that all of us in hundred years, maybe none of us will all be disappeared, burned in the crematorium, or buried in the ground, or fed to the vultures, or thrown into the sea, or what? <laughs> all these bodies. So, so the 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 attachment to the body is an attachment to death, and yet we can see it as attachment to life, but it's. That's how deluded we are about it. When you contemplate it, you see that that, it, that your identity with your physical body is is an identity with death, not with life. Or say your just your emotional nature, which is which can you know be very strong and emotions like always have a, you know such kind of urgent quality and kind of overwhelming quality to them sometimes and. The emotions, but they can change. They can, you can, you can feel high one minute and depressed the next. Manic depressive. You can just go manic, and then the next minute you can go down into the depths of despair. Emotions are, they can be screaming, say, this is important. And then the next minute it, you can, your mind can be filled with some totally trivial, foolish thing. Then, because uh, emotions are, I like that. They just kind of all over the place, and they, they have no, they're not stable until there is a samadhi of, or a, a a balance of emotion, an equanimity. But not when you're caught in the kind of ups and downs and highs and lows of of a feeling life and reacting to life. So we let those die. The, Death once dead, there's no more dying. We let everything die before we die. 
And Lung Pantor used to say that. He said, he'd say to people, sometimes, the Westerners that would come to the monastery, they'd say, did you come here to die? <laughs> There's always a bit of a shock. They didn't quite know what he meant by that. Said, no, of course not. He came here to get enlightened, to practice meditation, to improve my life or whatever. But, but he, he would like to say things that kind of were true in, in really direct questions, but which also were a bit shocking, really startling to hear. Did you come here to die? In the practice then, when we see, like in daily life practice, when you're, when you, say, go home and return to the, the ordinary life, these are good images to reflect upon and to, to not, not to, you know, not to uh, make problems about your daily life, but to, to be more open to what you're actually doing and, and uh, to, to observe the, the kind of force of habit. Not, not as a criticism, but a more willingness to watch yourself and, and observe rather than criticize. No need to go to get all critical about how you should be more mindful and you should be less selfish and you should do this and do that and, uh, because we we have that we always got this kind of inner tyrant always nagging away anyway telling you you're not good enough you should be doing something so uh, most of us I'm sure have we're not going to you know our problems lie in often in in that we have we have such a strong will and, and and a kind of obsessive tendency to do things and a, and a very and and standards and ideas that w- that make us very critical of things of life so we we begin to to make the determination to just watch and be more aware of of this to really not be afraid of feeling life, but to admit feeling, to to notice it, to contemplate it, and to to just observe how you live your life. Not to, to in order to understand yourself and and the way of letting things die, and not just always uh, say running around trying to to be caught up into into things that are arising. We're trying to be reborn again in some, some new interesting thing, some new relationship or some new profession or some interesting hobby or go on interesting adventure. Make life interesting. Because inter- wanting life to be interesting is is the desire, isn't it, to always have something interesting to distract you because you can't take boredom. Boredom you're just averse to and and you, you feel dead or you feel your life is worthless or you know, unless you're making it really interesting. So, we, you know, in, in the modern, with modern technology, I, I read about all these kind of 
these are kind of things that they have now, which is called virtual reality. Amazing, but more kind of deluded pretenses to distract your mind. <laughs> they all sound very, you know, tempting and attractive. You know, to be able to connect yourself up to a machine and kind of go into fantastic state of uh, that seems real. I mean, it's. Uh, but that's our, how our society, that's the aim of our society, isn't it? It's like that. It always is trying to increase the delusions, make them more convincing, more totally absorbing. It's interesting to see people coming here for, for a 10 day retreat, uh, giving up your virtual reality Equipment <laughs> to sit here and pain and <laughs> this is the, there's hope for us because <laughs> because you can see something in us doesn't really want that, do we? I mean, it, it, we don't want to live in a a world of delusion, even though it might be interesting and kind of mesmerizing, but basically when it stops, then you you feel totally kind of stupid and empty, and, and not empty in a in, as in a, uh, through realization, but a kind of like a meaningless, purposeless uh, life, just to seek pleasure through your body and senses. Uh, it makes life worthless. You're just trying to use your body or the senses and the, the mind just for pleasure-seeking and distraction. At the end of the day, you're left hating yourself and feeling uh, that life is uh, just totally meaningless and becomes suicidal. And it's interesting to see how how sitting like this learning to concentrate the mind develop in a skillful way how and how we begin to to develop something a, a, an intuitive sense an inner sense that and develop that uh, which is which is getting taking us beyond just the the personality we have or the or the uh, assumptions we make about ourselves and the world we live in we're tuning in to the deathless to the Amata Dhamma, to immortality, to ultimate reality. Where the other is just distraction, a death, death-bound distraction. Dying before you die, then, is when you're seeing, when you're allowing things to cease in your in you in your mind. Sometimes you do you do have a feeling of death, of something of of loss or death or even grief. 
But if you bear that, then uh, then it takes you to peace. And in Thailand, when when somebody dies, the people usually call the monks, and you chant this very short Pali chant, which goes, Anicca Vada Sankara Ubattava Yatamino Ubatchitavani Ruchanti De Sangubasamo Sukho, and this translates as Anicca Vada Sankara. All sankharas, all conditions are impermanent. They arise and they pass away, and in their passing is peace. And so this is this is what every Buddhist in Thailand, when somebody dies, and they the monks have brought in and you chant, Anicca Vadasangara Ubhattavan. You contemplate the the corpse, the dead body, and and you're saying to and you and you're reflecting on it. This is what happens. All conditions are impermanent. You're, you're noting. Here's somebody, you know, people are grief uh, stricken. Their, maybe their mother died or something and they're, they're feeling sorrow. And you're, and you're reflecting. All conditions are impermanent. What arises passes away and in the passing is peace. So, this, this is a, a very, Beautiful reflection when somebody dies. I remember in the, uh, in the, in, when I went to uh, Christian funerals, they don't, they don't reflect like that. And my mother died, uh, father died, they were, they were, uh, funerals were in the Roman Catholic Church and, uh, they had, they had, they were quite nice funerals actually, but it wasn't, it wasn't reflecting on Dhamma or what had actually taken place. It was like saying, uh, kind of like eulogies about how wonderful they were and now they're uh, up in heaven with the Lord and this kind of thing which was quite inspiring to the mind you, kind of, you know you in, inspired the mind with with beautiful ideas it's nice to think of your mother now up in some heavenly state with God and you know that's what she wanted she was di- dying to die she wanted to go and up and live with God in, the he- in heavenly bliss forever. So it's nice to to think of that. That's inspiring the mind, isn't it? But it's not really, it's not contemplating the way it is now in the present. And so, and, and, and I noticed this, we didn't in these funerals, Christian funerals, we didn't, weren't contemplating what actually happened. We were trying to avoid mentioning it. And, uh, and talk about things like how wonderful they were, and uh, and then how we will miss them, and how that but now they're up in heaven, and with eternal happiness. But uh, and we they they didn't open the coffin. You didn't look at the body or anything. You weren't willing. To, there was no kind of effort to bring attention to what what. That, that we, that what death really is. We don't, like death is something that we're all going to experience, but we don't know what it is because we're alive. And we're, we're now experiencing life in the, in a, in a conscious form. Death of the body is, uh, is in the future for us, isn't it? Right now, say, when you think of death, the subject of death comes into your mind, you know, that's going to happen in the future, the death of your body. 
I hope they're not going to happen right now anyway. <laughs> but the, but to, to die before you die is to observe the ending of things in your mind, of the desires and fears and uh, that, 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 that arise, that come up in your consciousness and then you can let them, allow them to go. They, they cease. And that's, just, that's death. That's die before you die. So in the, the cessation, like Third Noble Truth, realize it's cessation, you're realizing the, what death is. That it's just the ending of something that began. That's all. It's not, it's not any more than that. It's just the begin, the end of what began or the death of what was born. And so when you, when you contemplate that, and take it to to real insight, then you realize there's nothing to fear. That actually we don't we don't really die. Bodies die. Emotions cease. Uh, only things kind of that which begins ends. It's just the way things are. But we have, begin to have the intuition into deathless into deathless reality. They're ineffable to be experienced individually by the wise. Bhajitang we tidapo we knew he in the chanting the reflections on Dhamma. So that's peace, isn't it? That's peace. It's not a it's not a void of blank nothingness, it's peace. And we, we realize the magic of it all, the, the arising and ceasing of conditions in, in the unconditioned. It's a kind of miracle. What is a miracle? Is when something arises out of nothing, isn't it? We think that's a miracle for us, when something comes out of nothing. And yet that's what's happening all the time. And that things arise out of, condition arises out of the unconditioned and ceases in it. It's, like it's all a miracle anyway. But, but, so that the, we tend to be, the ignorance of the human being is, is our, is our identity and assumptions we make about being the, the things of life. The, the things that come and go. Because they're the obvious. They're the, that's what exists for us. That's what we see. This body's, you know, obvious thing. And if we if we just keep to a gross kind of sensory uh, level of of perceiving things and and without reflecting and going deep into understanding, then of course we live our lives always in in the assumptions of I'm the body and I'm my feelings and and then the and that brings all the fears and anxieties of life which are around death and loss and humiliation and not getting what you want and getting diseases and feeling pain and and all the rest is just so much to worry and potential misery in this human state that uh, if if we don't if that's all we do is is get stuck in the in the identity with this with the conditions of body and mind then then that's the dukkha the first noble truth that's why 
humanity suffers. And here in Britain you see a lot of suffering among people who have everything. Not like the unemployed or just the unemployed or the people in the Sudan starving to death. A lot of real misery exists in, in, in very wealthy affluent homes. And it's, and that's because of, you know, of, that's the natural result of, of ignorance, not understanding Dhamma. So, so having wealth and all the best that life has to offer isn't the answer. It isn't going to be satisfying to us. We used to maybe think it would. When you're poor, you think, you know, if I were rich, then I'd be really happy. <laughs> then when you get rich you find out you're not happy <laughs> that is uh, that sometimes you have to you know poor people think that uh, that we just say that because or think that rich people say things like that because uh, it's kind of you know to keep that, keep it all for themselves, and 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 talk about the one, the, you know, that poverty or being poor is is all right. But I remember in India when I was in India in '74, the, the uh, I, I in those days there were a lot of the untouchable caste Hindus converting to Buddhism. And so, in 1956, one of the great Indian leaders, who was from the untouchable caste, converted, made a public conversion in India, became a Buddhist, and advised all the untouchable outcasts in people in in the Hindu religion in India to become Buddhists. So, since 1956, there's been these mass conversions, and so I was very sympathetic with all this, and you know, there's been a a kind of character that I am, you're always kind of sympathetic for people, for the underdog, for the for the poor, or the under the ones without privileges, or the people that have been mistreated by life. It always, you know, reaches your heart. So I thought, well, maybe I can help these people. And uh, so I started going to things, getting involved with them in, in India and uh, and I realized I was getting really in a difficult situation because these people were, they wanted, I mean they had, when they, they'd been badly treated admittedly but they were also, they wanted civil rights, they wanted equal opportunities, they wanted all the things that Let's say in America, you know, everybody has, but still people are miserable. <laughs> you know, so, you know, you remember thinking, you know, they have, they have, we have all that, all those things, and uh, yet, so what? Still get depressed, want to commit suicide, and can't bear life. <laughs> so, uh, but then I saw that, that that maybe that's what they have to do. That's where they are. They need to try to get those things. And 
not to put that down, and it's good to have, you know, to move towards more fair uh, economic and political systems, not, not knocking that. But I realized that, that I wasn't interested in that. And that, uh, because I already had it, so I was ready, you know, that was, that was nothing that I was, uh, that I felt deprived of in my life. But what was really missing was, uh, you know, what I felt deprived in my life was uh, the the emptiness of it all, the meaninglessness of it. And so the the attraction to the medi- Buddhist meditation and uh, could really appreciate the Four Noble Truths. When I talked about the Four Noble Truths of most of these people, they didn't, they weren't interested in suffering. Not at all. And it was very political movements. In those days, 1974, Americans were persona non grata in India because uh, Indira Gandhi was the Prime Minister and Richard Nixon was President of the United States and they hated each other. And and Richard Nixon was selling uh, uh, kind of jet aircraft to Pakistan, you know, warplanes. So... So that, that uh, you know, you felt you felt quite vulnerable being an American traveling in India in 1974, and uh, and then I I was I remember in, in uh, Kanpur, the the city industrial city of Kanpur I was there, and I was asked to give a a talk, a Dharma talk to some to these people. And so I went, and, and uh, there, were, there were thousands of them in a public park, all waiting to hear me give words of wisdom. They put me on a kind of platform with a loudspeaker system, and, and, they, and this uh, Indian man was going to translate into Hindi. So, so I'd say a few words, and, and then, and then this, this Indian translator would go on for quite a long time. <laughs> and he was very kind of, Dynamic and gesticulated, and I get, you know, after you know a while, you're going to wonder what he was saying. And at the end of it, at the end of this evening, I found out that he had misrepresented me totally, and had and was using me to put down the Hindus, the Brahmins, the Vedas, the Upanishads. I condemned it all. <laughs> And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to be thrown out of this country. They think I'm, you know, uh, some kind of of uh, malevolent force or American CIA or some dreadful thing. And I was really quite frightened because I thought, you know, I'm here, I've, you know, out of uh, good intention and innocence and naivety, I've got myself, you know, I could really be seen as a as a, an enemy. So then. Uh, they asked me to come the next night, <laughs> and uh, and uh, so I said uh, when they came to get me, I said no, I'm not going. And they said why? And I said what you did to me the last night was was despicable to treat a Buddhist monk like that, to to say that he's saying things that he's not saying, to to misuse a monk is a very is very demeritorious. 
very bad, very evil. I really laid it on thick. I said, I'm not going. I'm not nothing more to do with you. And they were all quite disturbed and upset by it. So finally, they said, Well, if we get a different translator, and I said, Yes. So they they brought somebody out, and uh, and I talked to this man first, and he seemed quite honourable type person. So when then I then I went back and I tried to set them straight, you know, saying that uh, that the Buddha didn't teach uh, hatred of any sort, or was not the Buddhists were not against Hindus or Brahmins or anything like that. They were teaching, uh, and I tried to give this about the Four Noble Truths. I don't, and the, and the man, the translator, I'm sure, was trying to give an accurate translation. But it, I don't think it was terribly inspiring to those people. <laughs> because uh, they were very much into, you know, feeling uh, indignant about their, how they've been treated. And, and uh, I mean, that's a, quite a high, isn't it, to kind of, feel angry about having been oppressed and having been treated badly and for for generations and centuries and so forth and you can really make a strong case emotional case of of, of indignation and anger and, and wanting to seek revenge after that I was more careful I in my and I thought probably what I've learned would be more useful in countries like this, <laughs> where people have all those things and real and still suffer. You know, it's true, isn't it? In the, the states or here in Western Europe, and that you know, people are quite receptive to the Four Noble Truths because they they aren't they aren't we we don't feel we you know that. That the next government is going to really make all that much difference. That the political system in Britain needs to be, that we need a new political system or, we, we realize it's not really the political system that's wrong or the, it's, it's the, the lack of wisdom that, that is the missing factor. Like here in, in Europe or in Britain or in the States, it's not really the political institutions or the, they seem to be all right in themselves. They would function quite well if they had wise human beings operating them. <laughs> I mean, so it's not a matter of, of trying to get the right, a new government with a, with a new political ideal, but in developing wisdom in the human, in this human state. That then the then the institutions we have will work much better. The democratic institutions, things like parliamentary government, and all that would would then be would work would you know would be doing the things in the right way. Nothing really wrong with with the with the institutions so much as with the lack of wisdom and the selfishness and stupidity of people that are in them. And that includes us, too. We're talking about ourselves. <laughs> so, <laughs> not to put the blame on on the, on the politicians. Uh, 
out there, but we can see if we if we don't put forth the effort to to understand, then why can we demand somebody else do it? How can we say, John Major, you should get enlightened <laughs> so that you can make our institutions work better? Why don't you do it? <laughs> The aim of the, the the realization and the insight into these noble truths, then it, it is a lifetime uh, practice in this form, this human state. It's not suddenly get it, get it, and then you just kind of live in a state of rapture and bliss the rest of your life. But you realize that you're you're always dealing with with the Problems and difficulties of, uh, of your own karmic, of your own karma, and of the world around you. That life is like this. It's always, it's always difficult and problematic, and and it always hurts a bit, and, and it's never going to be, you know, uh, smooth sailing in a, in a state of bliss in this form, because this form doesn't allow for that. This human state. This, when you look at it, you, you see you're, you're in a in a vulnerable state. It, it has a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort. It's naturally a part of the of this karmic predicament. It's just the way it is. It's not not wrong. Not like it. There's something wrong about it, but it is something to to understand. And then in the in the, with ourselves, with the people we live with, we, we begin to, to accept things more and more. What they are, like, uh, trying to, wanting people to be something they're not. And that we, like I found a lot of suffering in monastic life when I wanted bhikkhus and nuns to be something that, that I didn't think they were not wanting them to be what I think they are thinking that I don't like you in this that I want you to be something else or you know there's this this way we even out of good intentions or wanting people to to get enlightened or to get out of their bad moods or to be less selfish and so forth we can we can really out of that sense of, of our own self-righteousness, we can be quite insensitive and, and see people only in terms of what we think they should be and not fully accept them as they are. And accepting as, as they are isn't approving, it's not, not, not liking the way they are, but it, accepting. To accept something, then you, then then you're not. It doesn't matter. It's not a matter of liking the way it is, but accepting it. And in that, then there is more possibility for change and and for change in the right way. When people feel they they're accepted, and when you accept yourself, and not just hate yourself or criticize yourself because you're not what you think you should be, 
if you get caught into that, then then we we only become critics and and complainers, grumblers about ourselves or about the world, and that is of no benefit to anyone. Just living with a group of people grumbling is is hell, isn't it? Or you live with your own grumbling mind. I don't like this, I don't like that. And then you live with people around and they're grumbling about the weather, grumbling about this, grumbling about that. It's awful. You know, to, to, to just spend your time complaining. So in, uh, in, in, uh, understanding things there are, we, we feel it and we, we accept the difficulties and the problems and the irritations, frustrations of of this realm. And that means that we that we don't suffer from it. We're we're feeling it but we don't create aversion. We don't hate it. We don't uh, make a problem about it. Then when we when we develop this this more kind of meta-like attitude and and more, uh, an acceptance of ourselves and others, and things do seem better. You understand things. You you have insights, and people around you begin to you know you're you're not reaffirming their own misery or their own inadequacy, or or you're not. You're not kind of imposing, I'd like you better if you were somebody else, which is really quite cruel, isn't it? You know, I could, I'd be, I'd like you a lot better if you were what I want you to be, is what we say. Or, or I don't like you the way you, I mean, I remember we had this clear insight with Ajahn Chah because when he had his, uh, stroke and he was, uh, Paralyzed for ten years before he died, and uh, couldn't speak. He was conscious, and uh, and he, uh, you know, but he couldn't respond in any way. He could kind of gaze at you, stare at you with his eyes, and he could wiggle his toes. It was the only way you knew he was listening. So, so for ten years, the monks took care of him till he died uh, last year, and the. Uh, I remember when I heard this uh, that he'd had this stroke, and uh, it was about this time in uh, what ten or eleven years ago. And I, after the rains retreat, the Vasa Pansai, went immediately to Thailand, to Bangkok, and he was in the Chulalongkorn Hospital, big hospital in in Bangkok, and. And uh, when I saw him in the wheelchair, you know, he's like a sack of flesh just sitting there like this and he couldn't respond to anything. And you had to, they had to feed him and, and take care of him in every way. And of course, he would, he'd before been a very kind of, a very charming, uh, charismatic person. And uh, he was very lively, had great humor and you loved being around him. You, you thought people loved him. He was such a attractive and and uh, loving person. And then suddenly, 
you go look at this sack of flesh and it's not very attractive and you're just sitting there drooling and can't do anything and all you feel is this incredible sorrow and then you then you can see yourself wanting I don't want you to be like this I want you to be like you were a feeling of I don't like you like this I want you to be the Ajahn Chah I used to know and then you kind of, kind of contemplate this you know this you see, this selfishness of, of uh, I don't like you sitting in this wheelchair not being able to laugh or talk or entertain me and, and just sitting there like an idiot drooling on yourself and it's disgusting I don't like it and you listen to to this you know and, the, and you could see many people think we've got to take him to this place for treatment we've got to get him back so he's healthy again and everybody kind of rushing around trying to to you know do things to 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 so he would get back to the way we want him but nothing it became realized that there was nothing you could do so then the insight was that one was grateful to that he was still alive and ex- and to to uh, express our love for him rather than expecting him to pop back into form and to please us which is a more mature kind of way of looking at it isn't it no, where, where the childish one is I want you to you know I, I want you to you know to be the old charming teacher of you know where you can sit around and talk and laugh and I want to be entertained I want that and then, then we had to change we had to give to him we had to take care of all his needs things like this so it was like a, a growing up something in you no longer uh, would expect him to to do anything but just be there and one would do the best to take care of him which is what happened he lived ten years I think anyone anyone else would have died much sooner but he he had such excellent care (laughs) 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 the best in the world he had a a very devoted uh, I mean people loved monks really really loved to take care of him there was always there was any problem in getting monks to go and take care of him and and that was a ongoing thing for ten years day and night he was never left alone ever he was I mean so when any anything happened like any any critical signs there there was always somebody around to do the right thing so that he he wouldn't die but that insight was very meaningful to me to see the, the inner child or the, the baby or the, the one you know I don't want you like this I want you to be the Lumpo I used to know and then you realize they can't do that anymore it's your turn now to, to do the right things and one thing we can do is love people it's not you know sense of love not in in uh, in it's uh like infatuation or a way of liking but in accepting people as a way of loving them isn't it even though they might be pretty awful or 
pretty impossible uh, or difficult. Uh, hating them for being that way is of no use to anyone, isn't it? It eats away, eats you up, and it and it also makes them just. It doesn't help them, people that you you're trying to that you don't like. So, in the ultimate, it gets down to being just having a lot of faith and, and awareness, trust in the goodness of your own intention for your life. Make your intention for your life a perfect one. And this is what I find very helpful. Like You can do this quite intentionally in a rational way. Never do it when you're emotionally high. When you're just like this, kind of ordinary, not not high as a kite or not too low, but just ordinary, where you're cool, in a state of cool, calm collectedness. You can say, my intention is to be free from all delusions and to realize the ultimate reality. Now that's, now, now that is uh, what I advise you to do, to make that intention. My intention for my life is to be free from all delusion and realize the deathless ultimate reality. Then your emotions might say, well, and you think you can really do that? <laughs> Isn't that a bit over the top? Or, or The emotions will go on like that. But this is, this is how to use your mind so that you're you know, this isn't this isn't overestimating anything, or, or is, or is proclaiming yourself as, you know, special being is going to, to to have some special realization. This is our right as human beings. This is this is our this is the this is um, what we can do as human beings. This is what being human is about. We can we can intend. We can make that our pure intention, perfect intention. I can't think of a better intention for life than that. But that's made on the on the rational it's a rational intention. It's chosen deliberately. Then from that then we we can uh, observe our own emotional feelings about I can't do it or it's you know I've got too many problems. I'm too screwed up. By uh, this is being ridiculous, and the the way the negative or a reaction will come, just listen to that. Accept that also, but don't don't believe that's not your intention. Your intention you've made, and 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 that is like a guiding star, it's like to to keep you. If you have a you know in the dark, you need. You need to look at something above you that that you that can guide you. So that's like that's above you. That that's guiding you. That's what you you must look towards and remind yourself of. But you also need to know where you are, so you don't break your leg or fall into the ditch. You're just looking up at the stars and walking along. You probably walk off a cliff. So. So you need both. So you need to be know where you are, and you also need to keep your direction. So, so that that 
that ability to intend, to make the perfect intention is your direction. And then like for bhikkhus when we ordain, it's, it's always to realize the deathless reality when, when the purpose and aim of the monastic life, the bhikkhu monastic life is, is, is that perfect intention. And so, then, then the, then the developing the path is learning to deal with the things that in the way, the way things are, the, the problems, the obstacles, the, the, the things that disrupt you, distract you, delude you. But you, you also can keep your direction because you, you need to keep that the, that uh, to remember what your your intention is, and to keep that and to trust in that pure intention, and then you then you can deal with with the problems and difficulties of daily life and the and the and your own karmic tendencies and the frustrations and uh, exasperations of living with families and working and whatnot. None of those are obstacles to enlightenment. The only obstacle to enlightenment is is your own ignorance and grasping of things. So, so then the <laughs> enlightenment isn't something that's way beyond you and you can't do. And it's just uh, because if you start thinking like that, then that's the way your life is going to be. If you believe that, then you'll end up like that. Uh, because you, you kind of have already made your determination to be unenlightened. To be someone who can't do things. But, but So, if you're going to determine, determine the perfect, make the perfect determination. Because we can, we can deliberately choose that. It doesn't matter whether you think you can do it or not. That's not the point. The point is you do it, you make it, and then you can observe. You learn from your own feelings about your own inabilities or whatever. We need to to accept that side of ourselves too, but not believe it. And by willingness to understand and accept that side, we, we're, we're releasing it, we're letting it go. And more and more we we find our our goal and our reality and our present reality synchronized, integrated. And then we realize death once dead, there's no more dying then. Die before you die. And I imagine when I predict the future and I see I think if you keep Contemplating and 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 uh, the four noble truths till it's time to die, then death would be quite a pleasant experience. I should think I'm quite looking forward to it. Let go of this thing. You know, just it's wearing out. Got a few years left. Can still when it's time to. To die, then you, you're, you're letting go of something that that uh, 
that is not yours anyway and needs to you know it's kind of it's finished but it's certainly not nothing to to be frightened of or to uh, feel that that there's anything wrong with it because you know that that uh, all that dies is what was born and it's just the elements in the conditioned realm arising and ceasing and this of course is in meditation is is a, is to we can understand the words and the, appreciate the the meaning of it but the the realization is also possible the real the insight into this into the true dhamma is possible and the right of every human being i i make the assumption that we all have that right Because it's better to assume that than to assume that we that some people don't.